This is an AMI podcast. This program contains explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. For people with disabilities who are often unable to drive, public transport is the only way to access employment, educational opportunities, medical appointments, or socialize with friends or family. Apart from physical inaccessibility of transit services, people with disabilities face additional challenges when utilizing public transport. These challenges manifest in the form of an often apathetic, sometimes hostile, public. It's unfortunately quite typical that a routine trip on public transit for a person with a disability can go wildly off the rails. And despite human rights legislation and regulation on the books, enforcement and prosecution of complaints of disability hate crimes remains inadequate. Today, we discuss disability hate crimes on public transit in the UK. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juita Gupta. Today we're talking about a difficult topic, and I wanted to make that clear right off the top. As you know, I'm visually impaired. I've lived with my disability all my life. I do have a full-time job, I have friends and family that I want to see, and I spend a lot of time utilizing public transit in Toronto, where I live. I regret to say that I myself have experienced many instances of harassment and discrimination while using public transit. In the UK, a researcher who will be my guest today has done some research into the experiences of everyday ableism, harassment and discrimination experienced by people with a range of disabilities on public transit. And I thought today we would do something different. I want to open the show with a quote from that book because sometimes I think the most powerful voices are the ones that we hear least. So today, we're going to start the show by hearing a quote and an excerpt from that book. You'll be hearing from one of the participants in his research study who describes their experience on public transit. Here's the quote. Open quote. I said, please, could you move your pram? She said, my baby's asleep. I said that I understood. But if you wouldn't mind, because I need to be on this bus to get to work, I have no alternative. She said, my baby's asleep. I had enough. I said, look, I need to use this space. She then told the driver that I was an evil, disabled bitch because I was trying to wake her baby. I asked her to move her pram. I was really nice. She just stood there and said no and looked at her phone. The driver asked her to move or fold the pram up. All we got was no. She then sighed, looked up, and said, Why weren't you just killed at birth? I collapsed. I was stunned. I died inside. Am I that worthless? It turns out that this is not an isolated or extreme example, but perhaps 
very routine for many people with disabilities who take public transit. My guest today is David Wilkin, a criminologist and researcher specializing in disability hate crime studies. David is also the lead coordinator of the Disability Hate Crime Network in the UK and is the author of a new book called Disability Hate Crime, Experiences of Everyday Hostility on Public Transport. The book is available as a Kindle edition and as a hardcover on Amazon.ca. David Wilkin, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you. David, I really wanted to give the first word, as it were, to one of the participants in your research study, but I know that this research is very personal for you. In what way is it personal? Well, when I was a child, being autistic, I often suffered from abuse on public transport from other children to the point where I basically stopped going to school because I was scared of the journey. And if I was scared of the journey, there's no point in carrying on. So I didn't make the journey and I didn't go to school and I had years of being in fear and not going outside and that changed my life forever mm-hmm. and led to other problems later on. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who aren't familiar with the context, how would you go about defining a hate crime? Basically, it's hostility against somebody because of their difference. It might be because of their race, because of their sexuality, or in this particular case, because they have a disability. Now, we do hear quite a bit about hate crimes related to race or even sexuality for that matter. I would say, relatively speaking, we don't hear as much about disability hate crime And we may not even understand ways in which it might be different from hate crimes experienced on the basis of race or sexuality. Why is it that there's this relative silence? Disability hate crime is kind of the poor relation of all of the other facets of hate crime. And it's probably one of the newest to be explored. It attracts quite a small audience in academic terms and in the media and in interest in society. There's a lot of interest in racism, but very little in disability hate crimes. And they're different in that they tend to happen near a home by people whom the victim knows, Mm -hmm. and they tend to happen more often, sometimes committed by friends, family, and carers. And therefore the impact is that much greater. Now, I know that you also go on to work in a a transit authority, and so you've also likely witnessed some incidents of disability hate crime. But I'd like to focus on what the literature and the existing research says about the prevalence of disability hate crime on public transit. Is public transit generally considered a high-risk area? I know it is for women. Yes, it is. There have been lots of studies globally about public transport and hostility people face. But I say there have been lots of studies, but in relation to every other type of crime and where it's committed, there are relatively few, but there are still lots of studies, for example, in Mexico, in Australia, and in parts of Asia. And now I've written this one in the UK. It's recognised by the UK government that public transit is a trigger point for hostility against people, especially disabled people, 
because you have a group of strangers traveling together in a small environment. Sometimes there are frustrations because the transit is running late and there's little information. Sometimes there are queues. People are packed in. Uh, and so it's really um, a place where, like a tinderbox where these conflicts can arise very quickly. So, David, on that point, when you sort of think about the lack of research on disability hate crime, are there reasons aside from, let's call it disabilism or ableism, that we see so little research on the experiences of people with disabilities, not just around hate crime, but in general? Yeah, I think hate crime is um, not a very exciting crime in opposition to other crimes. I mean, lots of researchers want to write about violent robberies or serial killers uh, or other types of more exciting crimes, perhaps, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. But hate crime attracts a much smaller audience and a much smaller academic interest. Disability hate crime is, as a proportion of hate crime research, is an even tinier amount. For example, there are probably seven or eight people globally who research hate crime uh, against disabled people. And there is only one researcher globally who researches hate crime against disabled people on public transport, and you're talking to him. Oh so, you know, in, in, com in comparison to other crimes, it's not a sexy crime, if you like, mm. uh, although that sounds slightly odd. But, and, but it's one that has deep, long-lasting effects on the victims and their friends and family. There are many ripple effects that affect people around the original victim. Yeah. Uh, although these are recognised in, in many government papers, for example, in the UK, there is so little research because I think it is such a small and specific subject that people are just not captivated by it. Mm -hmm. and they've probably never been victims of it. Mm -hmm. The voice that you're listening to is Dr. David Wilkins, a researcher, in fact, the only researcher to have investigated disability hate crime on public transit. When you conducted your research, David, what adaptations did you make to the research process to ensure not only full participation, but also to convince uh, people with who have to provide ethical approvals that you were handling this seemingly vulnerable population with care? Well, this is very important because I didn't want to be what's loosely termed a research tourist, where academics come along and they just take people's information, use it for their own purposes, and then go. Everybody that participated in my research, I promised them that they could read the outcomes, that they could participate in latter research if it took place. But ethically, protecting my participants was very important. Obviously, they've all remained anonymous, which one would expect. I also used different forms of communication. Some people could talk over the phone, but didn't want to talk face to face. That's fine. Some people could carry out an exchange by email, but not by telephone. That's fine. Some people sent me videos of themselves uh, talking to me, and we corresponded by email. That's fine. So we used group uh, situations and one-to-ones for people that were confident to speak in those scenarios because some people don't like speaking in groups and some people don't want to be alone. So we accommodated all of these. I tried as many aspects as possible to talk to my 
participants. And also I learned from them. I think sometimes academics have a kind of an arrogant attitude that they know best. And what I did was I asked my participants how they wished to be approached, how they wished to be spoken with. And they told me what they wanted. So I took my lead from them. And I think especially with people with various disabilities, we have to be enormously flexible. And some researchers, I don't think, can be bothered to think about that. Mm. I know that in having these conversations with your participants, some very distressing stories came to our attention and your attention particularly. I'm not going to ask you to repeat them. I read the one excerpt from the book, and I think it really highlights the gravity of the situation for everyone. But Mm. what were some of the themes and some of the trends that you observed in the aftermath of your research? When I was collecting my experiences from people, it seemed that, especially on public transit, a lot of the priority spaces uh, were resented by other passengers. For example, they didn't want to move from priority seats or they didn't want to vacate priority areas or they thought that disabled people would slow down their service and cause a delay or they thought that uh, disabled people would make a nuisance of themselves and then make other people's journeys more uncomfortable. Also, people seem to use what we call banter or joking types of humour against people, which wasn't humour. It was a kind of an insult that was wrapped up in humour so that it would seem like it was something funny, Uh, whereas, in fact, it was a very hurtful comment. And often the perpetrators would justify what they were saying by saying that disabled people were a burden on society and that they were costing money and produce very little. And these comments often attracted collaborators who would also take part in the abuse against the victim. Mm -hmm. I want to explore this idea of collaborators, but also the concept of bystander apathy with you. After a quick break, David, I think this is a good place to take a breather. You're listening to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I want to say that this content can be very difficult for a number of us, especially those of us with lived experience of disability. If you or someone you know has experienced a hate crime, we do encourage you to report it to your local police authority. You can also, depending on the nature of the crime, contact the Canadian Human Rights Commission toll-free at 1-888-214-1090. That's 1-888-214-1090. When we return, we'll resume our conversation with David Wilkin about disability hate crime on public transit. You're listening to The Pulse on AMI-audio. And welcome back to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Chowita Gupta, and my guest today is David Wilkin, who is a researcher and criminologist who's looking at disability hate crime on public transit. Before the break, David, we talked briefly about collaborators, how a previously uninvolved passenger could be roped in to an act of disability hate crime by the primary perpetrator. Can you expand on that? Because you have a very interesting theory around it as well. Well, uh, there are lots of criminological theories, and I tried to give mine quite a sexy title called (laughs) Collaborative Alienation Theory, or CAT. 
CAT. I found that in 52% of experiences that my participants told me about, that the principal offender tried to involve other passengers on the form of transit. In many instances, that recruitment was successful. So the primary offender would use humour or justification or indicating that disabled people are a burden and would use those techniques to involve other passengers on the bus or train or tram. And quite often, those other passengers would join in and side with the original perpetrator. In other words, they would join in the abuse, mm -hmm. thus making the, the experience for the disabled victim much, much worse than just one person being a perpetrator. They kind of ran out of allies. And not only did they run out of allies, but they also saw that they were facing a range of abusers rather than just one. In many cases, allies joined in. In some cases, bystanders did nothing. Mm -hmm. And in a very few cases, only about 3%, did those who might be collaborators, might be recruited as collaborators, actually stand up and defend the disabled person. Only around 3%, um, which is a worrying. Mm -hmm. It is worrying because my participants were saying, I felt so alone. Because not only was I being abused, but when I looked around for help, people were kind of raising their newspapers or looking out of the window or looking at their phones. It was quite clear that they knew what was going on, but they chose not to defend the victim and not to berate the offender. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes you feel even more lonely in that terrible situation. What were some of the impacts of disability hate crime on the people who experienced them, both the short-term as well as the long-term impacts? In the short term, my participants generally felt that they were embarrassed. Um, they suffered embarrassment because they were being victimized in front of others, being made a fool of. They also wanted to clear the scene very quickly to get away from there, to get home, to get away from this awful situation. They also told me it was situations that happened almost every day. It's quite a regular occurrence. It's not just a one-off, and the vi and the perpetrators are different people. So it's quite a common thing. Uh, in the long term, my participants told me, and I can vouch for this, that there are long-term psychological issues, uh, not being able to sleep, fear of going outside, not wanting to attend important functions outside of their home, uh, being scared of the people they know and should be loving and the people around them. And to the point where some people have actually moved home so they can get away from the people who are persecuting them. So the short-term impacts are one thing and the long-term impacts are something that can easily last a lifetime as it does with me. David, you know, your book was a necessary read, a difficult read, but a necessary read. And the reason I say it was necessary is because the other aspect of your research, which is in its own way so illuminating, is the aspect of your research that deals with the transit authorities and your considerable efforts to get responses from them about the degree to which they're implementing the law and the ways in which you try to get responses from some of the staff at these transit authorities because ostensibly these are the people who are supposed to intervene and de-escalate. 
What were some of the findings that you found there? Well, it's interesting because in the UK, many of the public transport providers are governed by local authorities. Although the local authorities will tell you that they don't govern public transport providers, that's not actually true because they still provide the bus stations, the interchanges, and they still provide services for people who have special needs or at certain parts of the week or in certain parts of the day, times of the day. So they do actually provide services. Uh, We have a piece of legislation called the Equality Act 2010, which tells those authorities they must have equalities in place for all types of people, including disabled people. And those equalities should be transmitted on to public transport providers. They should be transmitted to their own staff. People should have proper training. And contracts they're entered into must include equalities. It basically isn't being done because the Equality Act 2010 is not being enforced. Therefore, the local authorities don't do their work. Therefore, the public transit operators don't respond to comply with the Equality Act 2010. However, when I talked with a sample of public transit workers, so these are the bus drivers, the train staff, that kind of people, they would dearly love to help disabled people more and fulfill their right, Mm -hmm. but they've never been given any training, they've never been given any guidance, they don't know what hate crimes are, and they don't know what disability rights are. So the authorities and the providers are years behind uh, and don't seem to be compelled to help disabled travellers. But the staff on the ground tell me they would like to, Mm -hmm. but they've never been given any guidance. The person that we're speaking to today on The Pulse is David Wilkin, a researcher and criminologist who's exploring disability hate crime on public transit. David, we've segued, I think, quite nicely into a point about recommendations. You've alluded to a need for as well as a desire for training on the part of frontline staff. What are some of the other recommendations that you make? Well, I recommend stuff that isn't very earth-shattering, really. I recommend that the the uh, local authorities should do their job properly and compi- comply with the law uh, and that they transmit the equalities that they should be using onto public transit providers. The public transit providers should be training their staff in equalities and disability rights and how to manage situations on their services. So they should also be carrying out their equality duty. I would like to see staff trained The training doesn't have to be long, but just a short session in disability rights and hate crime, just to make them aware of how people can be victimised on their services and how staff might help. I also recommended that the police in the UK should be made more aware of disability rights and how to communicate with disabled people. Sometimes it's as simple in this country as disabled people not being able to access a police station to report a crime. At other points, they're not able to communicate. And the police officers who have a very, very difficult job, I understand that, are not able to communicate fully with disabled people. So those are all things that could be looked at and at not very much cost. Mm -hmm. I want to bring our conversation to a close, but before I do, I also want to bring it full circle. We started talking about David Wilkin, the child who was bullied on public transit on his way to school. 
who missed years of his schooling because of it. And today I'm speaking to David Wilkin, a researcher, perhaps the only researcher, to have done some work in the area of disability hate crime on public transit. I want to ask you what this research has meant to you personally. It must have been hard work, but how are you feeling now that it's all done? I'm feeling better for it. It was a very strange journey because for years I, I couldn't write very well because I missed so much school. So my life changed as I got older, really, and I taught myself a lot of things and then had more of an education. But when I spoke with participants who had been victims of this type of hate crime as well, it brought back all the memories from years ago. And sometimes I knew what they were going to say next because it's strange that my experiences were almost 50 years ago, 45 years ago, but the experiences now are pretty much the same. And sometimes we shed a tear together uh, and at other times it, we, were, we got very close in these shared experiences and shared realisations. I think it was important work to do. It's a project I've wanted to do for some time. It took me around about three years, but it was worth every minute. David, I found your book extremely interesting, uh, but I also found it very relatable as a person with a disability. And I really want to thank you for doing the work and for shedding light on this important issue and for joining us on The Pulse. Thank you very much for inviting me. That was David Wilkin, a criminologist and researcher specializing in disability hate crime studies. David is also the lead coordinator for the Disability Hate Crime Network in the UK and is the author of a new book called Disability Hate Crime, Experiences of Everyday Hostility on Public Transport. The book is available in Kindle edition and as a hard copy on Amazon.ca. I just want to remind you that if you or someone you know has been the victim of a hate crime, we do encourage you to report it to your local police authority. Also, depending on the nature of the crime, you might be able to get some help from the Canadian Human Rights Commission. You can reach them toll-free at one 888 214 one zero nine zero. Once again, that number is one eight 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 two one four one zero nine zero. And I do hope you'll reach out and get some support if you need it. If you feel like you'd like to go back and listen to this conversation again, because there is so much to unpack here, you can find the show podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, there is the blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'm probably going to take a while to process this interview, and I'll have a few additional thoughts for you. But I'll close today by saying that one of the things that jumps out to me is how relevant this conversation is. It's relevant because, as David pointed out, it's not an issue that is a sexy crime, and it hasn't received a lot of attention. But I think it's also really important for us to take note of this issue in Canada, because on account of the Accessible Canada Act, we are in the process of developing customer service standards and other standards for, amongst other things, the Canadian Transportation Authority. So this is a moment of change in Canada. And by being aware of the experiences, good, bad and ugly, of people in other jurisdictions, my hope is ultimately that we in Canada can write something into law that will be not only robust from a legal standpoint, but would also have teeth and be enforceable so that people like me, people with disabilities can go about their day-to-day life without the fear of ridicule, without the fear of harassment, without the fear of being belittled. So ultimately, though, although this was a difficult conversation, 
As a person with a disability, I also felt this was a necessary conversation. And you know, I never shrink from talking about the difficult topics, but I would love to have you be a part of the conversation. You can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI to communicate your thoughts and sentiments. I want to thank Dr. David Wilkin for being my guest on The Pulse. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. But most of all, thank you for lending us your year on the program. And we'll be back with more Pulse on AMI-audio. I've been your host, Juita Gupta. Thank you so much for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.